What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Recorded live. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hi. Hi, who is this? This is Rose. Hi, Rose. How are you? I'm good, Emma. How are you? I'm good. Did your kids Am I the start first school one? today? Yeah, you are. Oh. Um, yes. Yes, I gleefully deposited my six-year-old at the steps of his school and ran. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, not really. But, yeah. Mm. I love the first day. Yeah. It's like I a holiday. Have... Yes. My kids don't start until for a well, One starts Friday and the other one starts next week. Really? Mhm. Yeah. Are they in public school? Uh, one is like a city school, one is private school. Ah, uh, gotcha. Mhm. Yeah, 
it's uh, this is the first time in a long time I remember so many different public schools starting on so many different days. Like some kids started last week, some are starting today, some are starting tomorrow, some are starting Thursday. I I feel like up until this point, it's always just been like one day. All the days are the same. I know. Yeah, it's challenging. Yeah. Hi, I see a couple more people on the call. This is Danielle. Hi, Danielle. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Who else Hi, is here? Carly. Hi, Carly. Hi. Hi. We'll give it a couple minutes, and then I think we're going to jump in because there's a lot to talk about today. How's everyone hi. doing? Hi. Hi. It's Julie. I just wanted to say hi. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm doing good. Yeah? I'm doing good. How's everybody else doing? Great. Yeah. Good. Good. Is everybody else melting today from the humidity? (laughs) Yeah. Today and every day. Yeah. I'm not going to complain, though. I know. That's where I'm at. I said bring it on. Yeah. Because... It's going to be really cold for a long time. Right. We, we know what's coming, exactly. Winter's coming, yes, it is. It is. And I think it's cooling down on Thursday, at least in, these, in this, you know, this part of New York. Oh, we're, it's supposed to be 90 degrees in Albany on Thursday, and there's like a 100% chance of thunderstorms. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's, maybe we'll break on Friday because I think we go into the 70s on Thursday, I think. Oh, Thursday good. or Friday. So, Friday, baby. I know. I don't do well <laughs> in the heat. <laughs> yeah. I don't either. I wish it would melt the fat off of me instead of just losing water. <laughs> right? <laughs> Did Danielle end up yeah. making it or is she at a yep. I'm I'm waiting on my mom. She's... Um, uh, She's been in and out of, um, I guess, prodromal labor for the past week. Okay. And um, she's a first-time mom, and so every little thing, she's she's kind yeah. of anxious. Um, she's been to the hospital once, only to be told she wasn't in labor, which pretty much also told her. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> touch and go. So any, I'm just waiting. <laughs> Okay. Which is hard because my daughter starts school tomorrow, so I don't uh, want to miss it. But it will be, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll, it'll work out just how it's supposed to. Yeah, I I have her all ready for school. I packed her lunch. I have everything set. So if I'm not there, hopefully Dad can uh, take over <laughs> without too much trouble. Um, but yeah, that is some pro on call shit right there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm never that organized. I'm impressed. Yeah, well, this morning, I, I, I've i just, every every time I wake up in the morning, I'm like, well, this is it. Like, I'm going to be called in, and it just hasn't happened yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah. But it's it's good. Well, I think I want to get started. I don't want to wait too long and people can join. Um, as I'm just going to pull up the chapters, and, and obviously there's um, people that were assigned chapters, but they're not on the call. We'll just have discussion um, about those chapters because I know there's a lot to cover. Um, and, you know, after putting this book on, I think we put this book on 
it's been at least a year, maybe a year and a half. We've had it on our reading list. And, um, you know, when I revisit to prepare for calls, this book, I just, I, I feel so strongly that the information is so important for doulas to have and that, um, you know, it really, it really can be a go-to resource book for us when we're working with specific issues and we're not sure um, about certain medical aspects or really what even comprehensive evidence-based care is. Because I think, you know, we throw that term around so much, but then you start to really see it in action and the, the decision-making that goes, um, goes into so many procedures and protocols at the hospital that really are not backed up with evidence. One of the things I really appreciate about this book is just the reframing of the midwifery model of care and evidence-based care. Um, Not that it's necessarily in opposition with obstetrics, but that there really is research behind it for a reason. And that the more we inform and share with our clients that information, the better, you know, the better every consumer feels going into it, I think. Um, and, and just they have more knowledge behind them to make those decisions in the moment. And we have more knowledge as doulas. So even though it's dense and it's a little more academic and, you know, there's a lot more research, I still feel that um, as a program, as an organization, I, I, want, I wish I had this information starting out so that I didn't feel the insecurities around the medical aspects of birth that I felt starting out. Um, so that's kind of just my, you know, my two cents on, on why the book's part of the list and why I like to take time in the program to cover it with you all and um, see what came up for you as you were preparing for your chapter and just getting through the book. And it, I know that sometimes not everyone reads it cover to cover, but I do recommend um, at the end of each chapter the reviews that they, you know, they have. It's usually like a 10-bullet-point kind of review. It's really worth reading that um, and using that to kind of refresh the information for yourself or even going straight to that part of it when you're working with a client and they ask about certain, um, you know, certain procedures. So um, does anyone else want to share about kind of how they're using this book, how it feels for them to have this be part of their reading list, the curriculum, and anything about that before we start and delve into the chapters themselves? Well, this is Danielle, and I really like the book. Um, It's nice to kind of have just an overview of different things that I kind of know about but don't know, like, in depth about, Mm -hmm. um, which has been nice. And I love the table of contents because you can just kind of flip through and, like, see if there's something that your client might be interested in or you might be interested in to kind of, like you said, not read it cover Mm -hmm. to cover but kind of look things up and kind of um, use it as that reference, which – with the other books, I really have enjoyed reading them as well, but this one seems more like a manual that you can, like, go to. Um, and I found that very helpful. hmm Yeah. And like you mentioned, yeah. I like at the end, the little, um, what, like, the best practices section gives mm-hmm. you a really good overview. I've mm-hmm. spent some time looking through those. Yeah. Can everybody hear me? This is Sarah. Yep. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Sarah. Hi. <laughs> I um I don't have my book in front of me because I totally uh, misunderestimated traffic where I was coming from. But um I pulled it up on 
um, on my phone on Kindle just to okay. go over on the side of the road and read it a little bit more again. Um, okay. And I just was thinking about how um, I have so many childbirth books. I have like every, you know, main one that everyone has on their um, to-do reading list. and um, But I don't have many books that I could hand to uh, like a skeptical dad or um, a woman who's getting her PhD in biochemistry <laughs> who are thinking about birth and what they want and wanting facts and reason and studies to look back on. And so I just, this may not be like my favorite kind of book to read. It's not Ina May Gaskin. It's not like glowing birth stories. It's a textbook, you know, but mm-hmm. um, but it is such solid evidence-based research. Um, and I'm I'm just grateful to have a really up-to-date book like that. Yeah. I have a lot of really old books that, that make me sort of question, um, I don't know, Ina May's writing style is not overly technical. So um, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the best book to hand to certain clients, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, uh, I appreciate just all of the wealth of evidence and information in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so enjoy that. It's about also it. nice that it's the updated, I think it's, it's more in depth for sure, but it's the updated version of the thinking woman's guide to a better birth. So a lot of yes, people have right. that, mm-hmm. you know, have, have had some kind of exposure to Hensi Goer's work, but this is just taking it, I think another step further and it's just up to date. So yeah, yeah. I, I used that book for a long time and always was pointing people to that A Thinking Woman's Guide. And then it started really to feel dated because mm-hmm. so much has changed. And um, and there's, a, to some degree, there's a greater awareness of the conversation in our culture about women and birth. And when that, when that book came out, there really wasn't a lot. Um, there wasn't mm-hmm. the business of being born. And their doulas weren't really... Um, as as well recognized as they are now. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, um, Great. it's good. Great. So let's um, let's kind of let's jump into it, and and we'll cover what we can cover with with those of you on the phone. It looks like actually, um, chapters one through seven, um, are all on the phone, and then Danielle, you're covering ten, eleven, twelve. So. Um, let's start with Carly. And again, I think uh, just just a note um, about this call too. I'm, I'm I think the conversation flows a little bit more when it's not the regurgitation of the chapter, but just what I'd love to hear to kind of get the, com- the discussion going is this is what really stood out for me in this chapter. Or you know, I read this and I made it made me think about this from a different angle. It could be about the model of care. It could be about a detail. It could be about a stat. Whatever it is, it's just kind of like what was the nugget that was illuminating for you as you read through the book um, or a page that you marked that you just said, you know, this really stood out to me. So let's kind of start there and then see where the discussion goes instead of it feeling a little more dry, which I think sometimes book reviews can feel. Um, We'll try and make it as dynamic as we can. So it's all yours, Carly. Jump in. So and we first will have a couple of minutes because I'm aware of time too. There's a lot to cover, so doesn't you know? I'll kind of keep I'll, I'll facilitate time while we're going. Well, this is the first phone 
conversation I'm having without having to grab my son out of everything, too, because it's his first day of daycare, so I can actually focus on the phone call. <laughs> but um, So when I first started reading the first chapter um, about the two models, um, the medical model care and the um, physiologic care model, I um, immediately thought back to, because I went and I visited uh, family in Philadelphia um, a few weeks ago, and I had my neighbor, um, my old neighbor there is, pregnant and she's due September 15th and mm-hmm. I went and I visited with her and she's just she's terrified of the pain and she said she's also terrified of getting um, an epidural and her I mean I tried to have a conversation with her but her mom's words were you're gonna be in labor you'll go to the hospital you'll scream you're gonna get your epidural and you'll have the baby you'll be fine so I was kind of like hesitant in giving too much information because when I was trying to talk to her a little bit about certain things um her mom was just like no just do it this way and I mean she's in her late 20s she's it's her first child but I just thought back to her because she doesn't know I mean just like think about the model being around her and the baby versus I mean her mom Mm -hmm. had a baby too and she just like is like this is what you do like this is what I did this is what everybody that's her other words where everybody gets an epidural so um it's just to see how people like I don't know, like they kind of just adapt to believing that that's what you have to do and mm-hmm. don't see these two different models and different um views so it was mm-hmm. just um I kind of like thought back to her situation and I also explained how there was other um pain medication options and she said she'd be fine having it through an IV and but didn't she didn't even know, had no idea that she could have other pain medications besides an epidural. She thought that that's all there was. So that's um, just to see how it was just like, I don't know, I guess I was kind of in disbelief that this is how people see it and don't really get to see the different um, aspects of it. Mm-hmm. So that was mm-hmm. one thing I thought back to. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like um, this, this sort of the, the way they frame the book in these chapters do you feel like you'll be able to pull that information and kind of condense it and translate it into a, like a way that would be helpful for your clients? Does it feel like you can? Yeah, I feel like I address can it from an educational point of view rather than the judgment of either one side, but just like, wow, have you ever thought about these other models? Or you know, if these models do exist and they do inform choices. Right, and I feel like in that given situation and in other situations like that, I'll be able to refer to this because it's more of, it's not like I'm, it doesn't look like I'm just giving suggestions, like this mm-hmm. is um, like educational and it's, I mean, it it's definitely um, from a better standpoint, like to be able to give evidence-based information and mm-hmm. um, even if I just pointed out certain points in the book and um, let them kind of take the information for themselves. So I definitely think it will be helpful in um, going forward and handling different situations um, Mm -hmm. with clients. And, I mean, for myself, when um, I had my son, I was told that the fluids around the baby were low, and then I just recently read the article about how that's not – I mean, they make it seem like it's this really – like it's really bad for that to happen when it's not necessarily – like the way they measure it and stuff can be different at different times – in labor and like I just read a lot more information about that specific thing and my first client actually had that same issue is what they told but when the doctor came in and said that it was like I I don't know like it just 
like you get this kind of feel like it's like a worry, like you're you become worried because of it. And when it, mm-hmm. if you're looking at these evidence-based information, then it's not necessarily that you can look at it in a different way and mm-hmm. not feel that anxiety. And I feel like that's what I got a lot out of this book is that there's so many ways to simplify it too for the average person, and then also somebody who um, is more educated, they can also mm-hmm. get those um, evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I think the first chapter is so powerful. Like that just sets the whole tone. You know, really yeah, kind of certain. I, I was trying to like go back and find it, but I know there was like certain things. Like I, I started highlighting through it, um, but there was like yeah. certain things that just stuck out. That was like I can't believe that, like these. This is what people think, or this is mm-hmm. how things are. It's um, definitely was like really powerful going through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, another thing, it's a, it's a, uh, the medical management model also reduces anxiety by conferring an illus- um, illusory sense of greater control over outcomes. That just uh-huh. um, kind of stuck out to me. Uh-huh. Where it, you're creating this illusion that you, that this is making you have more control over the outcome when in reality, if you take a step back, it, you could be doing the complete opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think from the labor support perspective, when we're really asking, when we say the word surrender or let go or open, we're asking our clients and that, that, that whole relationship to quantifying information to embrace something within that unknown space. It's unknown, and yet it's something you can trust within your own experience of your body, your spirit, your mind your connection to your baby and yourself, right? And so it's just that it doesn't have value in the same way that our culture has said, yes, that intuition or that inner wisdom or inner communication you have with your body, your baby, yourself, your heart is quantifiable in the same way that, let's say, an external fetal monitor is. And so we're constantly like dancing in between these two worlds of what's known, what's quantifiable, and what's not. And we're asking our clients to also dig deeper on ourselves, too, to rethink how we come up with answers, how we know what's right for us in a deep way, right? And so, and for some clients, it will be the information. It will be about interventions. It will be knowing the number, the whatever it is, that's, you know, the amount. Um, that's a pathological way of thinking about something. But I don't think it ever excludes us helping them also connect to themselves in a different way as well. And so it's just we're constantly in this dynamic as doulas, which I think is also really interesting, how we then relate to that with different clients. Anyone else want to chime in on these chapters, the early ones, kind of how the book is set up? Okay. I want to point out on page three and then the beginning of page four, it's really in the very start of the book, there's some really important statistics that I think uh, dispel a lot of protocols that we see in the hospital. Um, so you can take a look at that. One is around aspiration. Hospital policies prohibit eating and drinking during labor in hopes of preventing the one in three million chance of dying of aspiration pneumonia. See chapter 11. 
care providers routinely induce labor at 41 weeks or even sooner to avert the less than 1 in 1,000 chance of a healthy woman will experience stillbirth late in pregnancy. And women who have had previous cesarean surgeries are forced to have repeat cesareans to avert a 1 in 3,300 chance of perinatal death resulting from urine scar rupture. So saying, you know, these are these are like our triggers. These are things that come up for us all the time as doulas, especially not eating and drinking. So really, when you read something like that or you share that information with the client, one in three million chance of dying of aspiration pneumonia, you have to question, what is that policy about? You know, it's pretty clear it's about liability for the hospital, not the actual risk of that happening. So, you know, um, helping people understand what it would mean to have a spoonful of peanut butter. <laughs> you know, a power bar, a couple of almonds. And, you know, I know for, for doulas that are, that are going to birth regularly, see that small amount of nutrition can make all the difference for someone's birth, all the difference between avoiding something or not. And so, again, like weighing that out and sharing that so your client can make an informed decision to take a bite of banana, you know, to avoid surgery, having enough energy to push, let's say. And these are important things that come up that are, that are rooted in true evidence-based information here. That one always really stuck out for me. All right. Um, Sarah, you want to talk about chapter four and five? Can I just had to unmute myself. Can you hear me okay now? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I had um, the cesarean chapters, mm-hmm. and um, it it was a lot of of just citing studies and and giving the evidence, um, discussing sort of the the common myths surrounding the reason why our cesarean rates are so high. Um, so there was like the myth or the um, the cultural belief and then a rebuttal. And um, really, after all of these little sections that are breaking down, well, doctors say it's the women's fault that um, women these days have advanced maternal age and they're too obese, and so that's the reason we have um, higher cesarean rate. Or it's because women are demanding elective cesareans now, and so there are all of these sort of beliefs that um, the medical model puts forth to make us believe that that there's a reason for the higher cesarean rate. But really, what it all boils down to is money. Um, and I, I have never really read such a good breakdown or had uh-huh. such a clear understanding of the money and why it was. I mean, I always kind of thought, oh, it's malpractice and it's their time, um, uh-huh. but I never really understood it. So it was really good to see a few solid studies um, that broke it down um, and really explained how and why it's come to be this way and why surgeons would be um, almost like under the pressure of their uh, their their need to process women through deliveries to just mm. to have a greater volume. Um, and I think one example that's just sticking out in my mind is that if a surgeon, a typical surgeon's malpractice insurance is 90000 a year and a typical um, delivery 
whether vaginal or cesarean, is about 3,000 or so. I think it was maybe 2,400 was the example given. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that there's only really a $500 difference between a cesarean and a natural birth or a vaginal birth. The difference is the amount of time invested with each patient when you still Mm -hmm. have a waiting room full of other patients to see back at the office. So the cesarean is um, controllable and predictable and on schedule, and so it's so easy to just crank them out. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is... It's stuff that we know as doulas we hear about and we talk about, but it was really helpful to me and a good reminder to me to read this stuff and sort of think on it. Um, and just re- I reviewing the chapter last night um, and then also seeing stuff about um, improving birth rallies mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, all of the awareness that's sort of circling around right now because of Labor Day um, advocacy movements and bold to play and everything that's happening because mm-hmm. of Labor Day. It was like really timely to read a chapter on cesareans mm-hmm. and um, to to be reminded to have greater awareness about the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that just that the thoughts that I've been processing um, lately about doula work and advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a little bit more of a push that I see for doulas to sort of advertise themselves as doula for everybody, for every birth, um, unconditional support, right? And um, I don't know that when I trained as a doula 10 years ago that there was much conversation around that, the idea that doulas were for every birth and that we offered unconditional support. There was a little Mm -hmm. bit more of this like rogue doula out to save every woman from her birth experience and ensure that, the doctors wouldn't be like the evil doctors wielding their tools at women. And um, I've just been, I've been reading a lot of blog pieces and editorials and I've been following um, controversy from different doula groups. And, um, you know, DTI came out with this, the statement piece and editorial about that doulas are advocates. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I've just been thinking and learning a lot about the different beliefs that there are just in our birth worker communities, Mm -hmm. not even like our culture at large, but just amongst doulas, what the different ideas there are about um, finding the balance between advocating for evidence-based care and educating women about their options Mm -hmm. um, and also supporting them regardless of their outcomes. Um, or, or regardless of their previous outcomes. So dealing with moms who've had previous cesareans um, and considering VBAC. Um, I'm sorry, I'm totally rambling, but I've just been processing a lot about that. And um, I, I recently had a chance to reunite with um, the young girl, the, the young woman that I was first to doula partners with, mm-hmm. um, 10 years ago and we were both single and we were just exchanging birth stories from back then when we really were, our mindset as doulas was that we were there to ensure not the mom's, the the laboring mother's comfort or, or really um, we were there to support her, but we really felt like we were safeguarding her from her birth experience. Like we were there to make sure that nurses didn't bother her and we were there to make sure that she didn't get a cesarean and 
we felt like that was our role. Like deep down, we felt like we were there to prevent cesareans. Um, and and we were talking about how um, how different it is to to feel like our role can be to in, enable a woman to own her birth experience and to own her choices and to make informed choices and to be there to provide informed uh, evidence-based practices and to share them with her, but not to be responsible for the outcome or for her experience. Um, so I guess I, reading and thinking more about cesareans and how high the rates are and um, how we got to this point just makes me think, like, how do I, uh, moving forward, um, educate women about their options and provide it, the opportunity to have informed choice, but also give unconditional support. What does that really look like to mm-hmm. say, you know, I've seen doulas advertise with social media graphics that say, like, it doesn't matter if you choose an elective cesarean or you have an epidural or you have a natural birth, with a, you know, like in the woods or whatever. <laughs> and I think I want to say that I'm, I have the unconditional support, but I also know that my knowledge is rooted in this evidence-based information that says the cesareans are not the best practice for mothers and babies mm-hmm. when they're elected cesareans. So mm-hmm. I um, think this chapter really does a very, um, it's a very sobering chapter to me where yeah. you really get a different insight on, on the dangers and the risks in yeah. a way that's not glossed over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you bring up a really interesting point where, you know, in 2015 versus in 2000, we're in a different place with the record high numbers of interventions and cesareans. And so how does advocacy shift, right? (laughs) Because we can talk about informed choice and we can talk about evidence-based care, but it doesn't mean anything for that consumer when they're walking into a system that doesn't recognize that or function that way. So then how does advocacy become not just about education, but about organization, organizing, organizing mm-hmm. people, organizing around a cause, raising mm-hmm. awareness. Um, and then what are the tools that we use as doulas to effectively do that in a different way than I think people may imagine? Mm-hmm. And one thing that we're working on a lot is the whole, well, the whole definition of advocacy and then whose advocacy are we talking about? Because if you go to lots of other communities, there are other women, birth workers of color that may say, you know what, it's not even an option to not advocate. I advocate for everything I do every day just being right. on the planet. So the idea that I'm a doula who doesn't advocate doesn't even come into my mind. Like mm-hmm. the fact that that is even an issue isn't even something I've ever stopped to think about because it's not even an option. So that's like that for me is what we're talking about when we're talking about reimagining the role, reimagining mm-hmm. the definition of advocacy, thinking about advocacy through a lens of privilege from a birth worker's perspective. Mm-hmm. All of this starts to change kind of the landscape of how I think we relate to it and how necessary it is because it's only getting worse. Right. It's only getting worse. And it's serious, right? So it's it's why yeah, it's just I think that reading this chapter again sort of stirred up in me like yes of of course I'm an advocate as a doula and I don't want to be part of this of this movement of like 
professional doulas who advertise that they, yes, I'm all about unconditional support, but I'm not going to gloss over the facts and not make those facts available to clients who are coming to me for support and information and facts, you know. Um, and it just seems like I, I keep hearing this idea of like, oh, well, just you're just there to for support and not, I don't know. It just it's not it enough. Seems, it's not enough. It's not enough not to enough. show up and not say, actually, let me give you some information about that, and you can make a decision, and you can think about it. Yeah. Like, it's just, that's just natural to me to yeah. to want to provide information. So, um, And it doesn't mean that I'm some sort of crazy rogue doula. No, it's the opposite <laughs> of that. So I think right. this is a really, you know, we just did an interview about DTI, and this was a big part. It's really like redefining what we're talking about here, but then also having the support of our whole community of DTI to really say, like, actually, there may be a misunderstanding. We're coming from mm-hmm. a different place with this. But mm-hmm. we're pretty, I mean, yeah, we, we, are, we are making a clear distinction. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited. I'm excited for for what's coming down because it, it's be, it will be we'll have workshops and it will be formalized in a yeah, few months. Yeah, that's great. Um, where we are teaching tools specific to this. So, mm-hmm. but I think this chapter points right to it. So absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Great. Thanks, Sarah. I'm gonna mute myself again. <laughs> okay, Julie. Hi. Kind of piggybacking up on on the elective repeat cesarean chapter, but yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I just think through all the chapters that the girls were talking about already, um, I could be like, I second that (laughs) Um, through all of them, you know, but this one was really funny. I couldn't believe that this was a chapter I got assigned because I've just been really blessed right now to work with two Amish girls that are both VBAC and um, the first Mm -hmm. one we've already delivered and um, I just have to put my little bragging tune out there. I ended up working with a really awesome midwife down in southern Pennsylvania that actually has worked underneath Ina May Gaskin, and she's a friend of hers. So that was really cool. But That's um, awesome. I was really very unprepared for that whole, the whole thing. And so um, it was, you know, ended up being a great experience, and there was a healthy mom and a healthy baby at the end, and that's what the goal was. But it just... Um, as far as being a VBAC and this chapter talking a lot about, you know, rupturing scars and that kind of stuff, I didn't know, I had no knowledge of any of that. You know, like I was, I was not educated well on it. I did okay. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. I, and I made it through, but now hindsight, I'm looking back and I'm like, oh my goodness, reading this chapter, understanding so much more of what mm-hmm. the midwife was doing. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had kind of like a, you know, like a, the beginning of the week, I ended up being there six days with this couple. And the beginning of the week was kind of off because the mom, we are five hours away from the midwife. So we went down um, with her just being, you know, a couple centimeters dilated and contractions like every five minutes apart. And I'm kind of a little bit nervous thinking, okay, are we going to make it five hours down? Well, as we all know, you do. (laughs) And this was her, this was her sixth baby. um, And she's, She's been late with several of them. The two prior, she had uh, the the baby probably two years prior was um, a cesarean, and then she had a set of twins before that up in upstate, and they were also cesarean. Um, and we could not, we had a hard time finding, you know, somebody here that was willing to work with her as a VBAC. Um, 
she, you know, I did end up getting some names of doctors for her up in Syracuse, but they were really, uh, they just were, they loved the whole style of um, Judy Menser, the midwife we were working with. So anyway, long story short, um, I was there kind of like, okay, my brain is always very different. I'm like massage geared and doula geared. So I'm there mm-hmm. doing all of this massage work and really by the time we got there, her labor had completely stopped. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to do what I can to help, you know, get it going again. But long story short, Judy was really, she was everything that this chapter talked about as far as, you know, um, not wanting to, to do anything as far as inducing. And I was like literally um, driving five minutes into to a town where I could get service, researching on my phone while I was there constantly mm. because I was so, you know, just, um, not educated on it. This book, to me, very boring to read as far as like um, the style, but the the knowledge that comes out of it. Oh my mm-hmm. goodness! I feel the same way as Sarah. Like this is an awesome textbook that I want to have with me everywhere I go. And mm-hmm. also what Danielle had said about having the um, having the oh in the beginning of the book the cut table of contents so that you don't have to necessarily like be you know, summing through the book, but you can just turn to different things depending on your situation or, you know, your experience. But anyway, back to the VBAC part. It, this chapter really talked a lot about, um, you know, VBACs versus cesarean and why, um, what the dangers are, especially with women with the different kinds of cuts they've had during cesarean. Um, mm-hmm. the, the lady that I just helped with her delivery, she had just a regular, um, you know, uh, horizontal cut real low and mm-hmm. so, you know, she had a perfect birth, nothing, there was nothing bad, baby was great, she was great. Um, this next one that we're still waiting on to deliver, she has what they call a T-cut. So she has the vertical mm-hmm. and the horizontal cut. And so mm-hmm. just having this knowledge before I go into this is going to be such, it's helped me to understand why the midwife is waiting and mm-hmm. literally like letting things just go. She's now... I'm not quite three weeks overdue, <laughs> but she's quite overdue, you know, mm-hmm. and I've had a lot of um, apprehension, like, with all my, you know, medical background, like, Western society learning, you know what I mean? Like, I just have all of this, like, apprehension, like, is this safe? After reading this chapter and understanding, like, just, you know, our bodies know better than any doctor, any book, any anything, you know, and I just think, um, you know, reading how oh, one of the one of my favorite parts let me find this real quick um under i'm not even sure what page this is on because i have it pulled up as a uh on my iphone but um under cognitive dissonance in a cog position it says um mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. page 46 oh. yeah that might be it Okay, now this is a couple pages past, and it says, it's a a note at the bottom where it says, some of the factors increase the likelihood of being induced compared with women without that factor. This could influence the outcomes because some studies were carried out, blah, 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 blah. That's not what I was looking for. Ah, above that, it says, in most cases where care providers deter women from VBAC on grounds of excess risk of scar rupture, at least 95% of the women and generally more will have no problem with the scar. That put me so at ease, you know what I mean, just reading that and and the same thing as like what Sarah was saying, the evidence-based material, the research that's gone into this book and, you know, how recent a lot of it is, that just made me feel like, okay, 
So, mm-hmm. you know, tr- trust your gut. Trust these moms who are 100% like they're not even concerned. They're like, no, it's going to be fine. You know, mm-hmm. I do have the girl that's coming up. Her mom had said to me, um, will you please talk with the midwife and let her know more than anything, we're, we, we want to have our daughter here more than another baby. And if it comes mm-hmm. down to it being life-threatening for her, you know, please, you know, please let her know that. And I just am so excited to take this book to her tomorrow night yeah, <laughs> and go through great. some of it with her, you know, because yeah. their their biggest concern is, um, you know, the scar rupturing during the yeah. during the birth. And Judy's, uh, the midwife, her whole theory is like, why would a scar rupture during birth when we're the baby, the gravity is bringing baby down and out? Why wouldn't it rupture during nine months of a baby pushing out and kicking and pressing up against the scar? And you don't hear about that, you know. And mm-hmm. she she is she's like this crazy lady that will take the riskiest births, and she always has a wonderful outcome, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not to say that things are always going to be wonderful, but anyway, this book just backs so much of that up for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so so grateful that I I got chapter six. So oh, I'm <laughs> glad. Me. I'm really glad. Something that this also brings up for me is um, for doulas to do more scar education workshops uh-huh. about scar healing and breaking up um, the adhesions of scar tissue. Gina, our you know our my partner, um, had a cesarean and four years ago, and she has been working on her scar for four years, touching wow. it, um, breaking it up, massaging, um, going uh-huh. underneath it. I mean, she has done so much scar work and has mm-hmm. said, you know, it's transformed how she practices as a doula because most women don't touch it ever. They don't want to touch the scar. And yet the actual, the, the scar health plays a huge role in just their overall long-term, you know, sexual reproductive health, but also when it comes to a VBAC. So I feel like that's something also that I just wanted to point out because it's not something we hear too much about, but if you do find a resource in your community that's either doing my abdominal or scar healing work, it's very mm-hmm. powerful and can really be a healing for for cesarean moms. You, that was something that I was really um, apprehensive about even teaching with the, these two moms because mm-hmm. I was so fearful of the scar rupturing, you know, mm-hmm. and then after – after reading this, I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, like I should have mm-hmm. been teaching him this month ago. So That's good information. That's great. Thank you. Rose, you have Chapter 7, Induction of Labor, Patience is a Virtue. I love this this chapter, too. Yeah. Um, yes, I do. I have to grab my phone charger, though, I just realized. Um, but I can start... Well, I, I had a bunch of thoughts coming up when everybody else was talking. Um, I just posted something that I heard that popped into my head when Carly was talking about just knowledge and the culture or, of consent around birth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a really interesting radio lab story I heard a while ago. Actually, I've heard it a few times. And then, yeah, and then, right, echoing what everyone has said that this is an incredible resource as sort of cumbersome and, you know, thick as it is to get through. It's so, it's got so much information. And, yeah, it's really good information for people who need this, who need the data. Um, 
So, and I'm plugging in my phone. Hold on. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, and something I was thinking about when Julie was talk- just talking about VBAC is like, you know, I, we just had a successful VBAC last week. A client who came to us really late in pregnancy when she realized that the hospital she was hoping to go to had a VBAC ban. And had a VBAC ban? Yeah, yeah, okay. had a VBAC ban. And um, it just, you know, we've, we talked about VBAC bans in our training, this this whole notion of control and consent mm-hmm. and access to care. You know, we're lucky because um, here in Albany, we've got a lot of great practices that are very supportive of VBAC and hospitals that are, you know, quote, unquote, allow VBAC. Um, so this one asshole hospital who says, no, you can't do that here, whatever. You know, there's, it's not like they're the last stop on the line, um, which I realize isn't the case in a lot of areas. Um, so, you know, that is a discussion about privilege for sure. Um, but anyway, this mom had her VBAC, and she just was so... Like I see with every other birth that is so straightforward and so sort of, you know, seemingly easy for the mom, um, this, she just did not doubt for a second that her body could deliver her baby this way. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we see the very existence of a VBAC ban, it, like you would think that it would just, you know, just drive fear into the heart of anyone who's ever had a C-section. Well, if it's, if it's bad enough that this hospital is banning it, then oh, my God, I'm really high risk, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and and actually, so I mentioned this all to my therapist who whose kids are in their, like, early 30s, and she was like, what the hell is a VBAC? I mean, when, when I gave birth to my kid, you know, she, said she has three kids, her second was a cesarean and her third was a VBAC, but she was like, you, everybody gave, like, you, nobody went back for guaranteed surgery right? years ago. Everybody yeah. had vaginal birth unless, you know, unless they really couldn't. And it just was an eye-opener to me, considering how quickly this has changed. Absolutely. Um, not only has the cesarean rate increased, you know, exponentially, but also this this horrible byproduct of it is the VBAC ban um, and, and the incredible rate of secondary cesareans, uh, you know, and it just, it just kind of blows my mind. Um, but anyway, regarding Chapter 7 and induction, you know, this was, this was, this was profound to me in a lot of ways. At my first birth, my first son was born after a very long and difficult induction. But reading this chapter and um, a few things stood out for me personally, which is that, you know, the research suggests that if you are going to do an induction, that it's really better to, to um, let it still be a long, slow process. 
yeah. uh, rather than put it on a time clock. Yeah. And, um, you know, I really appreciated that because I, I was in the hospital for two and a half days before I was even in active labor. Right. Um, and so looking back and seeing that, you know, the the decision to make an induction is was largely based on, you know, bogus evidence, but um but then the process itself was pretty evidence based and so I'm it, it was kind of just nice to hear that, to read that mm-hmm. and reflect on my personal journey. Yeah. And uh, it seems so simple, right? Like patience is a virtue. I mean I've said that a million times, but it's so true. Because when you yeah. really take that in all the way, you as the doula start reframing how you see yeah. the whole process, the whole decision-making process, and recognize that as doulas, it is not our job to fall into management mentality. Just because an induction is happening does not mean we then, as the birth worker support system, fall into managing the body. We don't have right. to. We can still pace. We can still think about what does this, this client need for their hormones to be elevated, for natural processes to begin? How can we support that and pace ourselves? And I'm pretty firm on this piece, and it's one of the reasons why we start our nine-month teleclasses with induction, because for me, when I think about going into an induction, I'm really thinking about two to three days, and I'm really bringing my backup much closer in on those births because... I, the best outcomes I have ever seen with inductions are the two- to three-day ones because day one and day two, pretty much nothing happens, but we're in the hospital for the induction. So I really, yeah. really want to drive that point home. Yeah. Yeah, the last two inductions that I went to ended in cesarean within five hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Due to hyperstimulated uterus mm-hmm. with cervidil, um, interestingly wow. enough. Mm-hmm. It's a risk, right? I mean, it's one of the risks. It is a risk, and it's, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and and it's not one that we look to. Like I, I have for a long time, I have been very frank about advocating against the use of side effects because it kills people and it kills mm-hmm. babies. Um, but so we, you know, so I've gotten a little comfy with the whole like, oh, so yeah, so you know, pitocin is, or I mean, cervidil is the um. A safer choice, and sure, it's sure. Choice, but it doesn't mean that you get a better outcome all the time. No, or the or the best outcome, I should say. Mm-hmm. Obviously, yeah. cesarean is better than death. Um, sure. But so so something interesting, uh, a quote that I wrote down from earlier on in the chapter, mm. which really spoke to me, and um, you know, once looking at the analysis of the induction evidence. Through the lenses of comparing, through the lens of comparing the medical model to the midwifery model, Hensi um, wrote something really powerful, which is, "We do not know the harms of depriving women of the benefits of an endogenously produced oxytocin, nor do we know the harms of inculcating in a woman the idea that her body is not capable of safely birthing her child on her own timetable." Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know. I get the chills thinking about that. Um, we have like really taken, really taken the power away from women mm-hmm. with the use of induction. Mm-hmm. And the possibility, right? Like the potential for what is possible. 
slowly being taken away from birth workers, from women, because we just don't get to see it. So if you don't see what looks normal when you see, what normal is most women having a baby within two to three days, and you don't have to think much about that because that's pretty normal, we don't get to see that because most birth processes are interrupted and managed. So, you know, yeah, it is. Great. Um, I'm just aware of time. I don't want to keep people on for too much longer, and I just want to check in to see is um, Adriana on the call? And if she's not, then Danielle, you're next for Chapter 10, 11, 12, and I'm going to skip over 8 and 9 because I want to make sure to give everyone a chance to um, prep and, and prepare for the call to speak. So just want to put that out there. All right. So should I start with Chapter 10 then? Yeah, Rosa, were you done? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. overall, my last thought was just that I'm really enjoying across the board throughout the book how she so firmly and swiftly debunks all the bad evidence that is being used to justify bad practice. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty fun. Great, thank you. Yeah, there you go. All right, um, so my three chapters, I should start by saying I really like uh, this book. I know, I think it was Sarah who said this isn't the type of book she enjoys reading, but I come from a very academic background with what I was doing professionally before um, I started being a doula, so I find this really, um, like I like taking notes and I like highlighting things, so (laughs) this is fun for me in a weird way. Um, I'm a total nerd, um, <laughs> but I, I'm excited that I also got these chapters, especially chapter 10 and 11. Um, these two are really about hospital policies that um, when you read the chapter, you find out are just completely outdated, mm-hmm. um, And but something that constantly, just myself as a laboring woman at the hospital had to deal with and kind of fight mm-hmm. for, and then I see my clients having the same issues. Um, so I found those really interesting, um, specifically those two chapters. Um, I'm glad. Somehow yeah. that works out whenever I sign. Like, I feel like <laughs> somehow people get the right chapter, which is good. Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking, like, I'm, you know, my son is a year old now, and I look back, and the my biggest thing was I didn't want to be hooked up to anything when I got to the hospital. So mm-hmm. I waited until I was at the pushing stage when I got to the hospital and they wanted to hook me up to the, the electronic fetal monitoring and I was told that this would be something I'd have to do for 20 minutes and that I'd have to go on my back. So the first thing I did was just go in the hospital, um, get on the bed on my hands and knees and I just refused to flip over. So they put the monitor on me but I wasn't going to like, you know, <laughs> do it their way and it was mm-hmm. very... You know, I, it was unfortunate that it had to be like that because the nurses were very pissed at me, but at the same time, it was, you know, something I went in knowing I didn't want to have to lay on my back and do whatever, you know, sort of thing they were going to tell me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was interesting finding out all the details specifically with that. So um, I'm sure... Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, for those who've read the chapter, um, electronic feed fetal monitoring, um, the idea there really is that it will pick up these abnormal patterns um, and the thought being that with this knowledge you can prevent um, the death of the baby, um, cerebral palsy, and other neurological problems. But the truth Mm -hmm. is that 
this doesn't really work. Um, it might pick up abnormal patterns, which could, I think it said like 95% of the time, just be completely normal. Um, and it might pick up things that later will show a problem, but it can usually not prevent the problems. It will just kind of say, okay, this is a problem that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, so I found that really interesting. It's um, kind of just in the medical model of birth that we've been talking about, um, it's used primarily to avert, you know, litigation and, you know, claims that things weren't done when they could have been done differently. Um, so this idea of the defensive medicine, um, I found really interesting from this chapter. Um, I don't know. I I think... I think that women go in, I, when I went to the Krauss Hospital class, it's like there's nothing that they talk about as far as electronic fetal monitoring as an option or, you know, they, they just don't tell you that it's not something you have to have done during different parts of your labor. Um, so it's not seen as an option. It's just a policy that this is what's going to happen and, you know, you just have to deal with it. Um, specifically, when we're talking about this, I found at the end of the chapter when it says strategies for optimal care, um, mm -hmm. they actually say refrain from the admission test strip. Like that's their first recommendation. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't know how that's possible, in at least in the hospitals in Syracuse, to, mm -hmm. you know, get around that. Um, mm -hmm. So that was one of my big kind of questions. Like is there a yeah. way around it in the hospital setting? Um, for that initial one, right. the triage one. Uh, nearly impossible. I mean, you know, I can honestly say it would be, it's the client. It's the client who needs to be talking about that with their care provider the whole time. And it needs to just be, that advocacy piece from them has to really be very strong. And you have to be willing to sign waivers and to refuse and to keep it going. And then I think as the doula, that's where the tools around the doula method come in, uh, how we support that and that we're aware of it going in, that right. that may be the situation. And that, you know, you freshen up on your statistics, on the research so that you're well-versed if yeah. you're questioned. Um, but, you know, even if they talk to their care provider about it, right. That triage nurse doesn't may not know that or have those notes or be privy to that information. So, you know, it could all go up. But when you review things like the patient's bill of rights and you're really very clear in your prenatals about informed consent and the rights that they have going into any situation in the hospital, it changes the conversation and it does prepare people in a different way. It's just we're talking about routine protocol. We're not talking about evidence-based care. Right. Yeah, and I think it's hard to um, it's hard to explain the difference to clients. I think um, without something like this, without a, a resource like this, um, yeah. to give them and to say, here's here's what the research says, and you know, um, now you can make your choice based on that. Mm -hmm. But you know, I went into my birth knowing a lot of this stuff, not all of it, but knowing some of it, and mm -hmm. I still felt forced into that initial test strip. Yeah. My idea being that I wasn't going to have to, like, you know, lay on my back and I wasn't going to have to, you know, do the things that they wanted me to do. That was kind of my, um, what's the word? Like, I, I didn't feel like my, my provider knew I didn't want it, but basically they said the hospital is going to make you do this if you have a birth in the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So it just felt like I wasn't supported by my provider, even though my provider was fairly, I would say, fairly supportive of a lot of the natural birth 
things that I wanted, uh, mm-hmm. but that wasn't one that, you know, they were going to help me with. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. Yep. Yeah, I think this is a huge, um, this is, the the fetal heart monitor is one of the, the places where I think we could be doing so much more education and yeah. and and advocacy to change it. Because yeah. um, it's just it's in place, but it's not based on 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 real information. Right, and on top um, of the fact that it doesn't really have any benefit, it also has the negative aspects of increasing cesarean rate, increasing yeah. instrumental vaginal deliveries, um, mm-hmm. maternal infection, and you know all the other things that are restricted when you're hooked up to the machine, like mobility and mm-hmm. um, you know access to positions that you might want to be in, and all of that. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then kind of hand in hand with that is chapter eleven with the oral intake during labor. Mm-hmm. This one I found really interesting because I didn't understand the premise behind this other than if you have a cesarean, it might not be good to have stuff in your stomach. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just I never really learned about it more than that and I probably should have. Um mm-hmm. But I didn't realize the policy was created in the 1940s when most births were highly medicalized, even vaginal births. Women were given, um, they were drugged up, and they really, at the time, probably it was a good idea that they didn't have, um, you know, food in their stomach because there was that chance that they could um, basically choke on their vomit if uh, they were under general anesthesia. Um, So in the 1940s, perhaps that made sense, but... It doesn't make sense now um, because general anesthesia really isn't used for the most part with, it's never used with vaginal births and it's usually not used with cesareans. So that whole idea that I had that, you know, the food in your stomach Mm -hmm. during a cesarean wasn't even true unless you had the general anesthesia, which, like I said, isn't very common. Um, So basically the book says that it doesn't make sense today to restrict food and water. And this is something that, like, the American Society of Anesthesiologists are aware of and have put out, you know, in 1999 they said, okay, you can take uh, clear liquids during labor and it's going to improve maternal outcomes and comfort and all that. But it's not really, I mean, it's there, but, you know, most doctors' offices don't support it or let you know or kind of provide all the information. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's interesting to me. Um, I think um, the other part of this that was interesting was the IVs kind of replacing oral intake and the concept that, you know, if you're hooked up to an IV, it's just as good as drinking water. Um, And on top of all the, the problems that come along with IVs, all the risks that can be associated with that. It also just, it makes the whole birth medicalized, um, you know, into that medical model. And it takes, you know, it takes the labor away from the woman. In the same way, when we're talking about the electronic fetal monitoring, all of a sudden you're hooked up to machines and someone else is checking in on you and someone else is kind of responsible for your birth and it's not in your hands or your control anymore. I think that was a big thing um, that the chapter talked about Mm -hmm. um, that kind of, stood out to me. Um, 
I have been to a lot of births where eating and drinking were permitted, so I think this is something, at least in some doctor's offices, that is starting to change. Um, but I don't think it's across the board. Um, so that's something, and it's just something like that you don't hear about. You don't, you don't get all the information um, going into your birth. So I think it's really important. Um, the other thing that I found interesting was I was always told to drink as much as possible um, during labor, before labor, making sure you're super hydrated. And one thing that the chapter pointed out was that, um, yes, you should drink, but you should only drink to thirst because you don't want to basically overwhelm your body with liquid, mm -hmm. um, which I was unaware of. <laughs> I've always told my clients to drink a lot of water, um, so now it's making me rethink that um, kind of for the safety purposes. Um, have you had any experience with that? You know, I, I, I'm glad you point that out. I mean, I feel like from midwives and from other doulas and other educators that hydration is one of the um, key, like, risk factors for most women in labor, that they're dehydrated. Yeah. That, like, for the most part, most people come into the hospital and then throughout their time in the hospital or home birth, they end up becoming dehydrated. Right. So uh, I think it's just something to be aware of and kind of tune in on, like, okay, if you're with if you are a doula and you're really pushing fluids, either keeping a chart of how much intake or for them to do intake and outtake, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think it's definitely something worth keeping in mind. Right. Um, yeah. I yeah. always recommend that they bring an electrolyte drink. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I usually, by the time they're pushing, I've usually started to cut their water in half with, whatever electrolyte drinks they're using. Um, I find that, especially when women aren't eating, that their blood sugar suffers, and so having a, having a sugary drink with vitamin C really helps with them with their energy. But I also started doing this routinely, um, like over a year ago when I had read something on one of those, um, you know, Birth Workers of the World Facebook groups about uh, an, an uptick in the number of women becoming overly hydrated in labor. So yeah. um, mm -hmm. electrolyte balance is, is really the, the main concern. So I always ask them yeah. to include that when they pack their bags. Yeah. yeah. I, I've been recommending Same. smart water because it has the electrolytes, like, in the water, so it doesn't have all the other stuff um, that some, like, yeah. you know, Gatorade might have other things mm -hmm. in it. Or there's coconut water. Yeah, coconut water. Mm -hmm. Coconut water, there's a drink called Recharge. But yeah, Recharge. It's like organic juice, but it's diluted and it has salt mm -hmm. added. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are also recipes online for labor aid. Basically, you just want to make sure that there's some sugar, some salt, and some vitamin C. And those are like the three basics. So like squirting right. some lemon juice and a little bit of honey and a pinch of salt into a, a bottle of water is, is usually perfect. Um and and it's mild enough that you know they like it. It's not not an upsetting flavor. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. I I just when I read that I was like, wow. I always push <laughs> water, and I hope I'm not doing something mm -hmm. wrong or that's going to hurt anyone or the baby. So, Probably yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, the last chapter I had was on epidurals and combined spinal epidurals. Um, mm -hmm. I think, 
Yeah. <laughs> I um, just want to check in. If, is everyone okay to stay on for a few more minutes? I can. I just want to make sure. If you need to go, you yeah. can go. I just want to check in. My baby's still asleep, so I'm good. Okay. Keep going. Um, okay, so... This one also I just found interesting because epidurals are um, very, very common in hospital births, and um, as far as the medical model, it kind of is like the standard. Like once you're hooked up to the epidural, then the birth is completely out of the laboring woman's control, and everything from you know having to have a catheter to having um, someone tell you when to push is, you know, it's not in your control for the most part. Um, and that was really interesting. Um, they had the listening mother's stories, um, and they said that 76% of the women who were, um, who were in that interview had received epidurals. Um, and one of the things that they pointed out that I found really interesting was that 9% of those women said that the epidural either didn't work or didn't provide the sort of pain relief that they were expecting and how traumatic that made the whole experience because they were just mm-hmm. the whole birth experience on having this epidural and then having it not work. So I don't know, the idea of like not being ready to have, you know, or not having techniques to cope with the discomfort and expecting not to have it. I don't know, the whole situation seemed very traumatizing. Um, sure. And the emotion? Are you still there? Yep. Just the emotional um, trauma that goes along with epidural period, the fear, right. and then when the release is not experienced, that right. the memories um, um, that come from that, people remember that, those feelings. Yeah. Right. And so then the chapter goes through and talks a lot about the problems with epidurals or the potential problems, um, spanning from, like, the complications that the mom might face um, you know, itching, discomfort, um, nausea, vomiting. So just kind of like a, again, like a uncomfortable birth experience from whenever the epidural is put in place until the end. Um, they talk about how combi- combined uh, ep- spinal epidurals pretty much just increase the likelihood of complications and problems. Um, and that the other main concern was do epidurals affect the baby, do they affect, first of all, do they affect cesarean rates, and then do they affect uh, kind of the baby's behavior? Um, And it was interesting because in my head I always thought that, yes, 100%, you know, an epidural will increase your chance of a cesarean delivery. Um, What the book pointed out was that it's really complicated to kind of make an analysis of this um, Mm -hmm. because a lot has to do with other factors. Um, and just practice variation. You know, if you're in a practice that has low cesarean rates, probably having an epidural won't make much of a difference. Uh, If you're somewhere that has a high cesarean rate, even if you don't get an epidural, you might end up with a cesarean. So it's just so variable in that sort of way. Um, So the book actually says that epidurals can but will not necessarily increase cesarean rate. Um, But I think more importantly, it has a list of all the potential complications that um, I think women need to be made aware of. Mm -hmm. Uh, At at the end of the chapter, they point out that, uh, the authors point out that they're not trying to prevent women from having epidurals. Um, And I think as doulas, that's something that a lot of us are like more inclined towards the natural uh, 
towards the natural birth, and we have that sort of bias. Um, and a lot of it's based on this medical evidence. But, you know, they're pointing out that if a woman chooses to have an epidural, they should have all the information in front of them, and it should be discussed before they agree to it. Um, instead of going to the hospital, um, I had a VBAC mom last month, and we went to the hospital, and the first thing the nurse pointed out to her was her epidural that was waiting for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it wasn't even a discussion, do you want medication? It was just, she didn't even look at her birth plan. Um, so that's just kind of the mentality. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, stepping back from that and having women make the choice, I think, is huge. Um, as far as epidurals affecting the baby, um, that's another, you know, another huge debate. Um, they found that fentanyl um, affects breastfeeding. Um, that's something that has been proven, but mm-hmm. everything else kind of um, is up in the air. Again, the studies are difficult. Um, it's hard to pinpoint epidurals and the effects they have based on the fact that a lot of times women have had either other sorts of medication or drugs during a labor. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, if a woman has oxytocin, how does that affect um, the baby with an epidural versus not having an epidural. So it's just hard to actually study them. Um, so there they basically say, um, I forget how they worded it. Um, we're going to say that, yes, they do affect it, a baby's behavior until it's proven otherwise. Um, so I don't know, just kind of having that, having that is interesting. I wish that there were more, there was more evidence there um, because there's not a clear-cut answer. It's not, yes, it definitely does, or no, it definitely doesn't. Um, so I think I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I know. I think that there's aspects of this chapter, you, you know, we, we, toward, we tend to lean toward wanting those definitives, and it's not as clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I think the other kind of major point of the chapter is – instead of talking about all these, you know, epidurals and what they might do, what they might not do, kind of just figuring out what women want and going back to their choice and having mm-hmm. the knowledge, um, having all the knowledge before they make the choice. I think that's the biggest kind of takeaway from the chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the the first strategy they have for optimal care here is to give women all their options and then really mm-hmm. discuss them. Um, you know, as a doula, discuss the benefits, discuss the risks, um, and doulas can do that, but more importantly, care providers should be doing that. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah, that's kind of the main, the main thing I got Great. from that. There. Great. Thank you. Um, well, we, I see that there's a handful of you guys that, that are still on the call. Um, we're not going to get to the rest of the chapter. So I think, um, just review them on your own, and we could either pick up discussion um, online, you know, like if there's a chapter or there's something that you want to to revisit, um, please make sure to, you know, post it or, or pull from the page and then keep the conversation going. Again, I think this is a book that we're constantly referring back to and using, which is one thing I really like. I've now read it a few times, and I've referenced it with different clients, and I think um, once you kind of it, it, once it di- you digest this book, it's 
it is very um, wonderful as a resource. So, um, you know, keep that on hand and, and um, let's keep the conversation going on online. I'm just going to look and see what our next call is before we get off. Um, Okay, so our next call is our last call. Amazing. Your journey as a DTI doula tightening up certification requirements. So you have until October 31st to mail everything to me. I'll post my home address so you can have it. Some people scan all the paperwork and email it to me. If you feel like you're close but you don't think you're going to be able to complete, please um, email me and I'll send you... Um, well, you can make the decision to either do the extension, which is two months, and I'll send you the links for that, or just be in touch so I have an, a sense of where you are in the process. Um, if you are, like, short of a birth, but somebody's due October 20th, that would still count. Let's say you go past the 31st, but I know you have your third required birth um, kind of in the wings. That would still count. So just if there's any, you know, um, specific questions, just call me so we can figure it out one-on-one together because my goal is always to help you guys finish and um, and and make, you know, work together to make that happen. So um, that's it. I can't believe it. That went, didn't it go so fast? <laughs> I'm so but, excited. Yeah, five and a half years of being a doula and I'm finally going to be certified. <laughs> so great. That's great. Yeah. So, um, thank you for participating and doing the work, you guys. I, I it means a lot to all of us, really, to me and to, to everyone on the call. And I really appreciate you for showing up every month and being active in the program and giving back. This is how we learn together. So, appreciate your time. And um, just call me if anything comes up. We'll be in touch. It was nice to hear everybody's voice. Yeah. yeah. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus.